to today, beginning our reading in our study in verse 47 and reading through verse 53. It's our pattern at Redeemer to work sequentially through books of the Bible, and we are uh, now in our third year looking through the Gospel of Luke. Some wise pastor before me once said that the Gospel accounts are really crucifixion stories with very long introductions. Uh, and so they are, but we are nearing the place now that Jesus, he said back uh, in chapter 9, has set his face toward, uh, to go up and to offer himself as a sacrifice to sinners. Uh, this afternoon we will read what is known as the uh, betrayal and arrest of Jesus, though the arrest doesn't happen until verse 44, and so to get that context, we're going to read through verse 44, but we're studying together today verses 47 to 53. You can find that, if you've not already, in the Pew Bibles at page 882, Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 47. And before we read God's word together, please join me in another word of prayer as we seek his blessing. O gracious and glorious Lord, this is your word. It teaches us about our Savior and about ourselves. Help us, O Lord, to see him more clearly, that we may walk with him and trust in him. Give us your Holy Spirit, that we would be laid bare before your word, that you would put us together in the image of Christ, that we may walk with him and live with him in holiness. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and to the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he... Add a blessing as we study it together today. Certainly among the least important news stories that broke this past week was the story that came out claiming proof uh, that Subway's tuna sandwiches contain no actual tuna. Maybe you saw that one. Uh, the whole sad saga began back in, in January, actually, when two women filed a lawsuit against Subway uh, claiming them uh, of uh, engaging in fraud, charging them with fraud and intentional misrepresentation and unjust enrichment. The claim uh, said that uh, Subway's wild-caught tuna is actually a concoction of fishless ingredients that were intended to resemble the real thing. Now, the lawsuit goes on to state that the plaintiffs were, quote, tricked into buying food items that wholly lacked the ingredients they reasonably thought they were purchasing. So apparently, with nothing better to do, a, a reporter with the New York Times, Julia Carmel, bought five foot-long subs and sent them to an independent lab for testing. 
And just last Saturday, she released the findings. To quote the labs, no amplifiable tuna DNA was present in the sample. Now, the article does, uh, to be honest, it goes on to talk about the difficulty of extracting DNA from cooked foods. And, and, and alludes to the fact that maybe even now the, the findings aren't completely conclusive. So for now, at least, as we all wait with bated breath, I'm sure, uh, it continues to be a story of buyer beware. Sometimes things aren't always what they seem. Of course, in the garden, uh, the situation was far more serious than sandwiches. Nevertheless, Jesus, our Savior, was presented with false advertising. There was a fallen disciple who presented a loveless kiss. There were impetuous apostles who brandished their swords without permission. There were lawless leaders who hid their injustice under cover of night. All around Jesus, false affection and false piety and false authority are masquerading as the real thing, and our Savior is not tricked. He is not taken in. He knows the thoughts and the attentions of everyone around him in the garden, whether they are for him or against them. He is not taken in. And through these verses, we see quite clearly the Savior unmasking hidden realities behind this human advertising. It was in Judas that the Lord encountered betrayal dressed as affection. That's our first point today. Betrayal dressed as affection. Now, you know that history has no lack of traitors and turncoats. They seem to rise up in, in every new generation, some new Benedict Arnold, some new Brutus, who's, who's ready to, to stab the Caesar that trusts him in the back. But no traitor ever betrayed so much, no traitor ever betrayed so boldly as Judas did, and Jesus' question catches the sick irony of it all. Here comes the crowd with Judas at the front, one of the twelve, and Jesus turns. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The kiss, in a sense, was a privilege of Judas' relationship with Jesus. Others approached Jesus from a distance, others made their request without coming near because they didn't think they were worthy, even uh, the centurion, to have Jesus come under his roof. Some fell on their faces, but Judas was among the number of those who kissed the Savior. It was privilege. Mary's body bore him, and Joseph's arms carried him, and the lips of the twelve grazed the cheek of the Savior. And we could attempt to play it down if we wanted to. We could try to make it less heinous than it actually is. We could tell ourselves, of course, that at this time, uh, a kiss was just a customary greeting. It was like a handshake, but with a little more stubble. Uh, we could tell ourselves that, that, uh, that any disciple was duty-bound to, uh, to greet his master with a kiss of respect, maybe on the hand, maybe on the cheek. We could try to play it down, but the language in the text doesn't allow us to be that modest. In fact, the Greek verb that is translated in the New Testament, to kiss, is the same Greek verb that is also translated to love, phileo. It's meant to be a sign of brotherly affection. It's meant to be a sign of, uh, of allegiance, a sign of fidelity to the one that you gave it to. But for Judas, the kiss of affection became an act of betrayal itself. 
The kiss itself was, was the predetermined sign so that in the darkness of the garden, the soldiers could put their hands on the right man and lead him away to his death. I remember seeing not too long ago a, a map on the internet, a, an interactive map that, that changed as you moused over it, and the map was showing all of the sites in Iraq and Syria where uh, American drones had dropped bombs. And on each site, it was marked with a red circle, and the circle was bigger or it was smaller, depending on the number of lives lost uh, in the airstrike. And it was informative. It was, uh, in a sense, sadly appropriate. But what if it was just a little bit different? What if, instead of red circles, those airstrikes were marked with hearts? Glittery hearts. Uh, Lace-trimmed hearts, all, all hearts dressed up for, for Valentine's Day. Wouldn't we look at that and agree that something is wrong here, something uh, is off, something doesn't fit, the wrong symbol is being used to convey the wrong idea, and in a sense, wouldn't it make it all more heinous rather than less? It happens sometimes. It's like murdering unborn children in the wombs of their mothers and then having the gall to call it health care. And Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Any other form of betrayal would have been easier to swallow. If Judas had been bold enough just to show up with a, with a pointing finger, if he simply would have stepped out of the darkness and shouted, that's the one, get him. If Judas had betrayed the Savior with a fist instead of with his lips, it all would have been less sinister. But the sinister nature of it is a reminder, as J.C. Ryle said, that the worst, the most wicked acts may be done under a show of love to Christ. And we know about some of those wicked acts. We know of the, the inter-family fights, right? We know of those sad blots on the history of the church where one sect of Christianity has risen against another sect of Christianity and both of them in their own corners are proclaiming how much they love the Lord and they love his kingdom. And so there are the 284 English martyrs put to death, burned at the stake under the five-year reign of Bloody Mary I. Less Protestants think that their hands are clean. There is Michael Servetus burned at Geneva under Calvin's watch. There's William Tyndall. There's John Huss slaughtered for translating scripture into the language of the people. And it could continue, of course. Now, in American Christianity, the kiss of betrayal shows up in different ways, perhaps, but it still shows up. It shows up in churches that invoke Christ's name and ignore Christ's word. It shows up in places where they preach a gospel of uh, complete tolerance, where they tout their openness, where they tout their affirmation, and then they never go on to speak about sins that are so serious Jesus had to die to set men free from them. Unless conservatives think that their hands are clean. It shows up in conservative homes where that good biblical doctrine of headship in the family becomes twisted becomes a demonic excuse to keep children, to keep wives and women in fear and subjection. It shows up in small ways when we baptize our juicy, old-fashioned gossip. And we say, I'm just telling you this so that you can be praying, but 
you'll never get. Well, there are untold ways that we can kiss Christ with our lips and betray him with our lives. And that's the reason that Jesus' question to Judas ought to shake us as it ought to have shaken him. When Judas drew near with his, his lying, puckered lips, Jesus was letting him know that he was not caught unaware. He wasn't hoodwinked into thinking that this was affection. He knew what was in Judas's heart. He's not so easily fooled just to look at the outside man and ignore the intentions. And Jesus' question to Judas is, is really one of love. It's one more opportunity for Judas to consider his actions. It's one more call for Judas to turn and repent. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Remember Judas who Jesus is. In the darkness of the garden, soaked in the sweat of his prayer, he looks like a lamb ready for the slaughter. But he's the Lion of Judah. He's the son of man, he says. The Daniel 7 figure who, who will open with his own hands the books of judgment. He is the shepherd who will separate the sheep from the goats. He is the king who will rule over an eternal kingdom. He is the Lord we proclaim today in Jeremiah who searches the heart and tests the mind to give to every man according to his ways. And with his question, Jesus is reminding Judas that no show of affection could possibly obscure a heart that is bent toward betrayal. He's reminding him that no earthly gain could ever be worth becoming an enemy of the Lord's anointed. And so in Judas, Christ encountered betrayal dressed as affection. In the apostles, he encountered defiance dressed as zeal. Again at verses 49 and 50. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We're not surprised, uh, as brash as, as this is, we're not surprised when we turn to John's gospel and find out that it was Peter that had the sword in his hand, of course. Typical Peter, there he goes. All gas, no brakes. Uh, there he is, rushing in. He's got his sword in his hand. He's got courage in his heart. He throws himself between Jesus and, and this threat that everyone saw coming. And even if, we, we think, even if Peter is the one who sometimes ends up doing the wrong thing, well, at least he's the apostle that's willing to do something, right? Not the very least, it helps us to understand Peter's sincerity. In the upper room, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison. I'm ready to follow you to death. And at this point uh, in the fight that's about to ensue, it looks like that's exactly where Peter is going. So we can say lots of other things about Peter, and we can say he was lots of things, but we can't say that he was a coward. And yet for all Peter's courage, for all of his zeal, his swordsmanship was an act of defiance, not an act of devotion. For one, this was an instance of the apostles, again, Jesus' disciples, fighting God's battles with their own worldly resources. Of course, Jesus had just had a conversation with them in the upper room where he told them that they're going to need a sword. And now, here in the garden, they take him literally. 
But Jesus had also told them they need to pray so that they don't enter into temptation. You know, that's not nearly as exciting as a bit of rough and tumble. When you talk about fighting, it gets your, your blood flowing. When you talk about praying, it makes your eyelids drowsy. And so while the apostles slept, Jesus prayed himself into submission to his Father, and they awoke groggy and prayerless, and they did what we do. They relied on the only thing that they really trusted, themselves. And their fighting was also wrong because in the rush to leap to Jesus' rescue, they didn't even stop long enough to hear what Jesus had to say about it. Another news story maybe you saw back in April. The police were called to respond to a group of trespassers outside Miami trying to gain access to a $5.7 million mansion. The mansion was vacant, and the property was for sale, and a local couple decided that that was the perfect place to host their dream wedding. And so they planned the event. They sent out invitations. And on the big day, they showed up with tents and chairs and flowers and caterers, and the only thing they didn't have was permission. They never even asked. And the apostles here are guilty of the same impulsive arrogance. Before Jesus has an opportunity to speak up, they answer their own question with violence. They're so set, they're so sold on their own plans that they don't stop to hear what Jesus has to say about it. Worst of all, I think, in their zeal, they proved that they would not obey the word that they had already heard from Jesus. Three times in Luke's gospel, three times Jesus foretold that he was going up to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised again. Chapter 9, verse 44, he said, Let these words sink into your ears. Hear this, he tells them. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And that means it's not just some throwaway detail. When we get to this passage in verse 49, then it tells us that this all went down when those who were around him saw what was about to happen. What did they see? They saw that the Son of Man was about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They saw that all that the prophets had foretold about the Messiah was about to be fulfilled. They saw that Jesus was about to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In other words, what they saw was that all of their persistent, earthbound dreams about having some political conqueror king like all the other nations, what they saw was that those dreams were about to be shattered on the rock of Calvary and buried in the tomb of Joseph. And in the face of Christ's arrest, zealous, courageous Peter is acting far more like Peter according to the flesh than Peter filled with the Spirit. You remember the first time that Jesus told his apostles that he was going to suffer as a sacrifice for sinners. And Peter shouted, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And now he's shouting it all over again, except this time he's got a bloody sword doing the talking for him. Well, all the courage of Peter is not going to weaken Jesus' resolve to follow the plan the Father has set. He will be betrayed. He will suffer many things. He will lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, the warrior armed with prayer, steps in and responds to his hot-headed apostles by staying the course. Verse 
You know, out in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stilled the wind and the waves with a simple command. And so it is here. He says a word and, and the confusion stops. And swords are sheathed and the soldiers stand by. In the midst of it all, Jesus heals one of the men who came to arrest him. Can you imagine it? He touched and he healed one of the men who came to arrest him. And this healing is not accompanied by some of the other ones that we, we read in the New Testament where it says, and he went away glad and rejoicing, telling all of his friends what the Lord had done for him. There's none of that here. In fact, for all we know, this is now the man who is closest to Jesus, who has the most opportunity to put his hands on Christ and to take him into custody. You see, Peter tried to place himself between Jesus and his arrest, and in order to stay the course the Father had called him to, Jesus resumes his place in the line of fire. And so in Judas, Christ endured betrayal dressed as affection. In the apostles, he refused defiance dressed as zeal, and in these religious leaders, he exposed cowardice dressed as authority. Maybe it's a strange question, but when I read verse 52, one of the questions that pops into my head is, I wonder what these men were wearing. Here they are, out in, in uh, the darkness, out in uh, the place outside of the city. Here they are, and Luke tells us there were chief priests and temple officers and elders of the Jewish people. All of the high-class heavyweights are there, and I want to know what they were wearing. Did they go out there in business casual just to see something important? Or did they insist on wearing their power suits? Right? Did they, did they uh, hoist up and carry their long tassels? Did they duck with their turbaned heads so that they wouldn't be hit by the olive branches as they made their way through the trees? Were, were they out there in their priestly garments and their, their rich, long, woven robes that identified them as men of power and influence in Israel? That's at least part of the benefit of calling in a SWAT team, is that they show up in their big black vans and all their tactical gear, and it sends the message that things are about to be pretty serious. And I wonder if these men went out just to watch it happen, or whether they thought that their decorated presence would add a sense of gravitas. There's some sort of moral legitimacy to this midnight raid. That was what they were there for. That was their whole purpose in Israel. These were the keepers of justice among God's covenant people. They were the arbiters, the guardians of community standards. Yet Kent Hughes says that they came out under cloak of night like armed robbers themselves. Their conduct was an implicit admission that they were outside the realm of justice. In a sense, it doesn't really matter what they were wearing because... Kent Hughes goes on to say that when they showed up, Jesus' question undressed his captors. It exposed their naked guilt. He said, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. In other words, it wasn't for lack of opportunity. They had the chance. Every day, every morning, Jesus would show up. He would walk into their jurisdiction. He would sit down, as it were, on their front door, and he would speak words of truth into the open air. Jesus had no reason to hide from them or to sneak around in secret places, and that means that access to Jesus was never their problem. 
Trying to find him was never the reason that they refused to wrap their, uh, their authoritative hands around his anointed throat. Their problem was one of public opinion. What would the people say? What would be the public response? How would the crowds react? Luke chapter 22, verse 2. He's told us already the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, and they feared the people. They feared what the people would say if they caught wind of what their leaders were doing. Jesus was a teacher that everyone knew, according to the words of Hebrews, that he was holy, blameless, undefiled. He was upright in thought and word and deed. He was righteous down to the very last jot and tittle of the law, and yet, you know, Jesus was in the way. And so they came at night. Not because it was the only time that they could find him, but nighttime was the only time that they could take him without anybody else witnessing the screaming injustice of their sin. Jesus called it the power of darkness. And you felt it. You know the way that you have successfully dodged temptations for 12 hours of daylight only to have them come knocking at your doorstep all over again when the lights are dim. When you think that nobody's watching. You know the way that privacy and, and idleness seem to conspire against you to push you into those corners of sin and temptation that you vowed you will never enter into again. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, The light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Frederick Godet put it well. He said, darkness is favorable to crime because in order to sin, man needs not to be concealed only from others, but also from himself. You see, the power of darkness is that it makes us bold in sin in ways that we would otherwise be ashamed if other people were watching and we knew it. In the garden, the leaders of Israel were positively moonstruck. They were bold. They were bold in ways that, that they never should have been. They were bold in ways that perhaps they never would have been if they thought anybody was watching over their shoulder. Christ was watching. The Son of Man saw every step. And they could dress it up however they wanted to. They could call it legitimate authority. They could put a, a pious spin on their walk out into the darkness, but the Lord knew it for what it was. It was cowardice. It was injustice. It was evil itself at work through the hands of impressive men. In fact, there's another way that we need to understand this, this language about the power of darkness. Dale Ralph Davis says that this is a scary word and that Jesus means that they are associated with and serving the dark power of the enemy. That it should have shaken them. But it didn't. It didn't shake them. It didn't rattle them at all. They, they just kept on ignoring. They just kept on denying. They just kept trying to peddle their cowardly wickedness as something that it really wasn't. But Jesus wasn't fooled. He wasn't taken in. He wasn't taken in by the authorities or, or by the apostles or even by Judas. Jesus saw through every smokescreen. He, he found out every lie. He knew every secret self-deception. And that forces us to recognize that there is one more hidden reality in these verses. 
the hidden reality is that in the garden, Jesus was willingly submitting himself into the hands of the Father. It's not what it looked like from the surface. By all appearance, it, it seemed like Jesus was, uh, was being steamrolled. And each person involved here saw it from a different vantage point and understood that that's what was happening. Judas saw the satisfaction of his plot accomplished. And at least initially, he walked away with that, uh, that satisfaction of the silver in his money bag. The apostles saw it and, and scattered they left scared and shaken. They saw their leader treated like a rabid dog on a short leash. And now he's being led away to be destroyed before he infects anyone else. And for them, it felt like a defeat. And for the religious authorities, it seemed like a victory. No matter what Jesus might say against them, they got what they came after. That troublemaker is in their custody, and by morning time, the charges are going to be drawn up, and the witness stand is going to be stacked, and Pilate will take care of him, and his hand will be forced, and Jesus is going to be gone. And from all outward appearance, it looked like Jesus was overtaken. That's the way the world speaks of Jesus' death. Where all the verbs are in the passive voice, that Jesus was betrayed, that Jesus was arrested, that Jesus was tried, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus was buried, and all spoken as though it merely happened to him, like, like he's some helpless beach being battered by a hurricane, and he can't go anywhere or do anything about it. That's not how Jesus speaks of his sacrifice. Jesus speaks in the active voice. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up, and this charge I've received from my Father. You see, Jesus wasn't fooled in the garden. He wasn't caught off guard or, or taken unaware. He went there to be found. He went there to be betrayed and to be plunged under the hour of darkness. Why did he do it? Well, so that he could take our cowardice. So that he could take our defiance. So that he could take all of our, all of our betrayal and all of our disobedience and all of our misplaced zeal for our own little kingdoms. He could take it and he could nail it to the cross of his willing sacrifice. He did it so that he could carry the sin that we can't get rid of ourselves. He did it to give us his victory. The promise of his resurrection life. And the smile of the Father. He did it for us. And he did it on purpose. And he did it so you would know that you can trust him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you for sending your Son to be a willing sacrifice on behalf of sinners. Teach us, O oh Lord, to trust in Christ our Savior. Teach us to know him and love him. Thank you for the forgiveness offered at Calvary. Thank you that he was a lamb slaughtered for the sake of his people. Help us to rejoice in him and to trust in you and all the promises of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.